This is Condopedia. Here, we talk about everything related to condo law in Ontario, with hopefully some humor mixed in. Hi everyone, long time no talk. Now that condo law with respect to COVID-19 has started to stabilize, we finally had an opportunity to record some normal episodes. This is officially episode 5, but really it's episode 1 of our actual podcast show. In this episode, I talked with Jim Davison. He's one of the name partners here at Davison Who Allen. Jim's been practicing condo law for over 30 years. So he has a lot of stories and he's been through many changes in the condo world in Ontario. So you'll hear from him and he's going to talk a bit about the history of condo law from when he first started to now, some of the major changes that's occurred over the period of time. We talk about the reasoning behind the existence of condominiums and You'll see at near to the end of the episode, about 10 minutes or so prior to the end, where Jen talks about one of his most interesting stories involving a police officer and a battery ram. Anyway, so this episode touches on a wide variety of different topics, so we hope you enjoy. Hi, everyone. So today I'm finally here with Jen Davidson, who is one of the lawyers here at Davidson Who Allen. Uh, before we begin our topic, I, uh, Jim, could you please first introduce yourself a bit. Well, David, thank you. I'm uh, one of the partners in the law firm. Um, I've been practicing condominium law now for more than 35 years. And uh, yes, there. Okay. So Jim, so you've been practicing for a long time. Now, for this first official episode of the podcast, I wanted to give the listeners kind of an idea of where condominium law was back when you first started to kind of where it is now. So could you give us a sense of how condo law was back in 1984? Yeah, um, just to get our bearings, I became a condominium lawyer in 1984. And uh, so as I talk a little bit about the way things were in 1984, what you'll see is that much has changed since then, since 1984. And the changes have really come about because condominium living has grown tremendously and I think will continue to grow. And uh, To put it in other words, I would say that condominium is really uh, the way of the future. I think we're going to see more and more people living in condominiums because they make a great deal of sense for many types of occupants. Now, just to give some sense of the growth, In 1984, when I started in condominium law, there were about 230 condominiums in the Ottawa region, and there were about 16, there were 16 condominiums in the Kingston region. And now there are over a thousand, about 1,060 condominiums in the Ottawa region, and there are about 80 condominiums in the Kingston region. So you can see the growth. And since 1984, there have been a lot of changes in Ontario condominium law. Uh, The Ontario Condominium Act was replaced in 2001, and that was by the Condominium Act 1998, um, which is still the Condominium Act that we're using today. But, of course, we've also seen a number of further amendments to that act, uh, the Condominium Act 1998. Uh, we've, uh, We've seen some further amendments in recent years. So, Jim, um, back in 1984, what were condos like? Were they the high rises that we see today or were they different? Uh, We had both high rises and uh, low rises, townhome condominiums. 
So in many respects, they looked a lot like the condominiums that we have today. But in 1984, there was only one type of condominium, what we now call a standard condominium. Now, there were high rises and low rises, but there were no common elements condominiums, no vacant land condominiums, no leasehold condominiums or phased condominiums like we have now under the current provisions of condominium law. Do you have an idea of why, why there was so much more variety now than before? Well, it's interesting. They, uh, they were the feeling uh, in uh, when the act was amended in 1998, and then those amendments came into force in 2001. The feeling was that there should be more flexibility, more opportunity for different types of condominium living, and so this is why there was a thinking that we should have common elements condominiums, which don't have any units but instead they allow for regular lot owners to share um, various different common features. And similarly, there was a feeling that we should allow for vacant land condominiums where you don't necessarily have to have anything built on the units at the time that the condominium is declared. So the idea was just that there should be more opportunity for different types of condominium creations, you know, more flexibility. And that, and that's why those things were introduced uh, by the Condominium Act 1998, which came into force in 2001. Hmm. That's interesting. Now, I know reserve funds. We, we talk about flexibility in the new Condo Act that we have now, but right. in terms of reserve funds, that's kind of an area where condos have a lot more obligations now. Was that the case back, I guess, in 1984 as well? Reserve funds existed in 1984. So we've had reserve funds uh, throughout my time as a lawyer, as a condominium lawyer. But reserve fund studies were not mandatory when I started. Uh, Reserve fund studies only became mandatory with the 2001 amendments that I've talked about. Um, So, uh, in other words, when I, uh, up until 2001, we didn't have notices of future funding, what we call Form 15s. Um, So, we we did have reserve funds. We had uh, condominiums contributing to reserve funds, but we didn't have careful regulation of the amounts of the contributions. There were, there were supposed to, they were supposed to be making contributions that were sufficient, but we didn't have expert studies to make sure that happened. So that was a big change in 2001. And I guess there's been some other changes um, from when you first started to 2001. Um, could you kind of give us like a quick summary of some of the major, like very obvious ones that has occurred since when you first started to, to now? Yeah, I give you some of the ideas uh, back in 1984 and throughout the 1980s and 1990s, etc. There was no mandatory director training. There was no mandatory director training like we have now. No mandatory disclosure for director candidates like we have now. Those are fairly recent amendments. Um, notice periods for meetings were different. Uh, so, for instance, the notice period for a meeting of owners was. 10 days. Today, the notice period is 15 days. Also, there was no required 20-day preliminary notice that we have today for a meeting. 
and there was no mandatory preliminary notice form or mandatory meeting notice form or mandatory proxy form as there are today. In fact, many of today's mandatory forms didn't exist until fairly recently. Electronic meetings and electronic voting were essentially non-existent until recently, even though they might have been legally possible, like it might have been legally possible for a long time to hold an electronic uh, condominium meeting or to have electronic voting, but it just uh, didn't become common until more recently, and particularly with the pandemic that we're now experiencing. It, it just wasn't something that we thought about very much uh, unless there was a human rights reason to have someone attend a meeting electronically. So uh, that's a big change. Now, one of the things I could add is that when I, throughout most of my early career, there was no email. Um, but, was it just letters back then? or uh, Yeah, letters. I remember when faxes uh, became more commonly used, and I distinctly remember court decisions confirming that faxed proxies were valid and effective. Uh, you know, they would be, the, uh, the signature would be given uh, someplace else, and then the uh, proxy form would be faxed to the condominium corporation, and that was confirmed to be valid and effective. But now, of course, we've got electronics that uh, are provided generally by email and by other methods too, uh, um, other uh, electronic means. Uh, so that's a, a pretty significant change. So back um, in 1984, if you want to get a hold of, say, a property manager, or or if a property manager were to get a, trying to get a hold of you, they will either call you, or I guess yeah. write a letter. That's right. They would wow. call you or send a letter. Uh, you know, we're so accustomed now with the ease of email and even texting. Uh, you know that these were unheard of uh, throughout most of my career, which is interesting. Were, were pagers a thing back then, or? Oh yes, yeah, pagers <laughs> for sure. They were they were into pagers, um, and so that was a good way to quickly connect with somebody or get them to call you back but not not the kind of communication methods that we have today. Now, some of the other changes I'll talk about. Uh, until 2001, we had no such things as standard units to help identify unit improvements. And of course, there was no condominium authority of Ontario, which we have now, uh, although we did have something similar called a condominium bureau that was envisioned at the time, but it was never created. It was never created. Mm. Um, there was no public registry of condominium corporations or condominium managers like we now have uh, through CAO and CMRAO, you know, the, their websites. And there was no mandatory licensing for condominium managers. So it was a very different world that we were living in in terms of condominium until fairly recently and certainly uh, some important changes uh, that came about in 2001 as well. Now, I know that declarations so a declaration is kind of like the constitution of a condo corporation it kind of spells out a lot of the basic uh, responsibilities and obligations for the condo corp and the owners now it takes 80 or 90 percent consent of the owners now to amend a declaration and that's a pretty high threshold at least for me who started a lot more recently was that the case back then or is it lower or higher or 
That, uh, what you just described, David, the 80%, 90% requirement, that came into effect in 2001. Previously, in order to amend a condominium declaration, we needed unanimous, 100% consent from all owners and mortgagees. A very difficult task. Um, and as you say, today we need consents from the owners of either 80% or 90% of the units, depending on the type of the proposed amendment. And, wow. and we don't need consents from the mortgagees anymore. Um, so that's a, a big change. Wow. What was uh, the reasoning back then for unanimous support? Well, I, I think the theory was that the declaration is the is is a, is effectively a contract. Uh, it's it's like a contract between the owners. And so the thinking and the mortgagees uh, at that time was the thinking. And so the thinking was that you really need everyone's consent if you're going to amend it. So we think of it today as the constitution. Uh, even then we thought of it as the constitution, but it was a very um, deeply entrenched constitution that couldn't be easily amended. Now I should wow. say amendments to correct errors or inconsistencies were possible by court order then, just as they are today. Uh, but of course, that only applies again to errors or inconsistencies that can be proven. Um, then you can go to court to get the amendment. But and that that was true um, back in the early days, as I call them, uh, wow. just as just as today. Yep. Now, so another thing I know that condos are known for is a lot of them are built new. So many owners, many purchasers, especially first time purchasers, they a condo when they, they buy a new condo and that's really their first home. What was it like buying a new condo back in the 1980s? Well, I think that the it was it was uh, in many ways similar, but there were some important differences. First of all, you didn't as a purchaser have quite the same resources in terms of gaining information about the condominium. So you didn't have the public registry, you didn't have the uh, Condominium Authority of Ontario, the CAO website. Uh, you didn't, you weren't able to gain information about the manager like you can today by going to the uh, CMRAO website. So in some ways you were working a little bit more in the dark uh, in, in those respects. You could still, of course, visit the unit and do an inspection of the unit, but you couldn't gain the same amount of information. Um, also, you didn't have the benefit of reserve fund studies and uh, notices of future funding that you get now with the status certificates. And the estoppel certificate that you would receive it was called an estoppel certificate back then. Now it's called a status certificate. It, it had less information. It was a shorter document. Uh, it still had some very important information. There's no question. This, the estoppel certificate was always a very important document, but it was not as extensive or as detailed as what we've got now by way of a status certificate and all of the attachments and all the detail about the reserve fund. So purchasing a condominium today I think it's easier to be informed. And that's that was a big part of what the amendments in 2001 and then more recently over the past few years were intended to achieve. That's so cool. I can't imagine what it would be like back in 1984 with the Nestafo certificate. Um, yeah. Okay, so we know, I think for many of us, we know why condos have grown so much in Canada over the past 10 years or even 15 years. 
um, increased density and whatnot. What was the reasoning behind condominiums back in the 1980s? Like, why would somebody purchase into a condo back then? Well, I think that the condominiums to me have always made sense. Uh, well, at least now for since 1967 in Canada, they have made sense because it's an opportunity for people to pool their resources, to share common facilities. Um, and not only that, it, it's an opportunity for people to own space in the air, um, which is uh, contained in a building. So many condominium units, particularly in high rises, uh, they, uh, the owners, uh, the units themselves are space in midair, of course, that are, uh, those spaces are surrounded by building. But it's effectively a way for a group of owners to get together and own a building or, or one or two or three buildings or more. And so it's a way to uh, increase the leverage and the benefits that people can gain by sharing uh, the ownership of land and uh, you know the related economies of scale that come with that and this can make a lot of sense for a lot of people particularly when you've got a condominium corporation there and the manager there uh, taking care of uh, some of the maintenance and repair that maybe some owners are unable or prefer not to be involved in and, and it's a beautiful way, too, that you can have a secure arrangement so that if you're someone that wants to leave for part of the year and go somewhere else, you know that there is the condominium corporation, the other owners, uh, the people that you share with are there to essentially make keep your unit secure, more or less, uh, while you're away. And so there's a lot of this that can make sense uh, for people, they gain economies. It, co uh, it costs less usually than owning your own parcel of land. So sharing is, is a way uh, that makes a lot of sense for uh, many owners. And that's really what condominiums are about. It's all about sharing. Um, now, there are complications that come with it. Uh, communities and uh, uh, the different sorts of interactions that can happen in a community can be complicated. And they can be difficult sometimes. But overall, it can make really good sense uh, for many owners. And I think that's why we've seen condominiums grow so much, certainly in Canada, in Ontario, uh, over the past 50 years or so. Now, you mentioned about some of the conflicts, because, you know, as, as condo lawyers, we deal with conflicts on a fairly often basis. Right. And so, given the fact that condominiums are becoming more popular, it's reflective more of our demographics. I know that we've all had very interesting stories about specific incidents, and I'm hoping that you can provide us with a with a story of your own from your vast experience in this area, and perhaps what we can take from that kind of story in terms of an area of condal law. Yeah, so uh, I did, uh, as we prepared for this, uh, David, I did think about um, a story that I thought our listeners might find interesting. And so I'm delighted to talk about a little story that happened to me um, a number of years ago. So uh, several years ago, I was attending a board meeting in a high-rise condominium. And the boardroom was on the ground floor 
on a corridor beside a couple of residential units. Um, and this is uh, common in uh, high-rise condominiums, that there's a boardroom usually on the ground floor on one of the uh, corridors, off of one of the corridors. During the meeting, I was meeting with the board, during the meeting, we suddenly heard loud yelling in the corridor, followed by a huge bang, and then some more yelling, and then the sound of someone being dragged down the corridor outside our door. Someone was being dragged down the corridor toward the main door. And it was essentially a huge commotion in the corridor just outside the boardroom. And, and then what happened is there was a knock at the boardroom door. And so we, all of us, there were several, us at, several of us at the meeting, we all got up and went to the boardroom door. And of course, I was careful to let the board members go first. <laughs> and that's true. I'm embarrassed to say that's the truth. <laughs> but anyway, when we opened the door, there stood a policewoman. She asked us who we were. And she seemed to know that we were in a board meeting. She uh, she realized that for some reason. And she explained that the police had just made an arrest in the adjacent residential unit. So the policewoman said, you'll need to arrange for someone to fix the door because uh, we, in referring to the police, we can't leave the property until we know that the unit is secure. So we all went out into the corridor and up to the uh, unit uh, where all of this had taken place, and we checked the door. And it had been more or less completely demolished by a battering ram used by the police. And the resident of that unit had been arrested and taken into custody. And the board arranged for the superintendent to deal with the broken door, and then the police uh, were able uh, and they were able to leave, uh, uh, leave the building. But I think the incident raises some interesting questions about police gaining access to the common elements and the units. So, for instance, suppose the police had come to the board before using the battering ram and had asked the board to use the condominium's key to open the door to the unit in order to save the door from being demolished. In that case, would it have made sense for the board to let the police into the unit? It's an interesting question. And in my view, the answer is likely no, except in cases where the condominium corporation has its own reasons for entering the unit, and it makes sense to invite the police in at the same time. So put another way, I don't think condominiums should be allowing police to enter either onto the common elements or into any unit unless the corporation has its own condominium law, its separate reasons to do so. In most cases, I think this means that you would only let the police or the condominium corporation would only let the police gain entry, whether to the common elements or to a unit, if uh, the corporation knows the detailed reasons and the corporation is satisfied that the reasons are in keeping with the objects and duties of the condominium corporation, not, not quite separate and apart from the objects of the police. So I think a condominium corporation needs to be satisfied that facilitating police entry makes sense for the corporation's own legal reasons if the corporation is going to, in fact, facilitate police entry. If there's any doubt, I think it's best to refuse 
and let the police deal with entry on their own. Otherwise, the condominium corporation could be criticized for a breach of privacy or, or uh, for uh, improperly allowing access um, to someone who is not a resident of the building. So would so, you say that police surveillance in Congos doesn't make sense, period? Or could there be some situations where it could be allowed? You know, we, David, we do see police surveillance in condominium buildings fairly often. Not, not, it's not that common, but we do see it from time to time. And I think it does make sense to allow the police to come in and conduct surveillance um, as long as the condominium corporation is uh, knows why what the police knows what the police are doing and the condominium is satisfied that this makes sense for the objects and duties of the condominium for instance the condominium may be uh, properly concerned about what is going on in a unit and may get information from the police that confirms those concerns and may be satisfied that the role that the police uh, are undertaking would support the objects and duties of the condominium corporation. And in those circumstances, I think the board may well decide to allow the police onto the property to conduct surveillance um, uh, 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 with a view to perhaps arresting one of the residents of the building. And again, I think this makes good sense, can be proper in cases where the board knows what the police are doing and why, and this is consistent with the board's own mm -hmm. concerns about the building. Oh, nice. Interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah, it is. So, so did the board, in, in that one case, that, that story, that, did the board ever invite you back? No, I, oh, did I, did they invite me back? Oh, yes, I've uh, had lots of dealings with the condominium, but, but we, ne I never heard any follow-up about this particular police incident, and um, I, I don't, uh, to my knowledge, uh, this was a case where the police entered on their own without anybody else's help. They broke down the door on their own <laughs> without anybody else's help, as, as I described, and I think that's all fine because Many times the police will want to keep it secret what their intentions are. They don't want to disclose what they're doing to the condominium corporation, and they don't want to get consent for their activities, or they don't need the cooperation of the condominium corporation. They just go about their own thing. And as I say, in many cases, that may be the best way to do it. Just let the police do what they need to do on their own, and then the condominium won't be criticized for improperly allowing the police onto the property or into the unit. Um, and so, uh, but it's a really interesting case where I, I think it might have been different if there had been a discussion with the police in advance the, and the police had explained to the condominium what was going on and if the condominium was satisfied that it was, uh, it was uh, the, the entire police uh, activity was uh, appropriate or consistent with the objects and duties of the condominium corporation, then in those circumstances, the board might have facilitated it. But we didn't have to consider that in this case because the, uh, the, the police did it all on their own, secretly, if I can put it that way, uh, probably because they wanted to keep it a secret. They didn't want to run the risk that anybody would be um, tipped off, so to speak. 
I think that's all the time we have for today. Well, thanks, Jim, for taking our time to give us a brief overview of the history and also to provide us one of your many stories about your time in condo law. I'm hoping that you can come back on again soon so we can, you know, get more stories and perhaps talk about another area of the condo law that we didn't touch on today. Anyways, thanks for your time. I'm delighted, David. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to this episode. Be sure to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. You can also find out more about our firm on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Or visit us on our website at davidsoncondolaw.ca.